continue our journey through Luke's gospel here. And we're titled this morning's message is The Crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so just to bring us up to speed here, um, Pilate has delivered Jesus to the Roman soldiers. He's been uh, scourged and he's going to be now executed. And one of the things that they would do, uh, these Roman soldiers, uh, as they acted without mercy, they would mock and ridicule the one that was suffering. They would strip the victim naked, stretch his arms up over his head so that his feet were barely touching the ground, and then they would whip him, uh, lacerating his back, ripping shreds of meat, uh, as it were, from his body. They, in this case, they, since he made himself to be a king, they played the basilicon, the king's game, where they would wrap a scarlet colored robe around him and begin to mock and treat their criminal with contempt. Um, they would ask for the criminal's last desires and only to remove what he had asked for right before killing them. Marked, ridiculed, crowned with a crown of thorns, stripped naked, beat over the head with a reed, hitting the crown of thorns. Those thorns were about two inches long. As they beat him on the head, that would have sent those thorns deep into his scalp, into his cheek, and around his head. Think about this. Jesus was willing to do this for you. Willing to do this for me. Willing to submit himself to that kind of humiliation, incredible pain. We pick up our story now in verse 26 as he's going to be led to Calvary. Now as they led him away, they lay hold of a certain man, Simon the Cyrenian, who was coming from the country and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of people followed him and the women who mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For in the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and the breasts which never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? And there were two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even as the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And with an inscription also were written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. It's amazing that even Jesus, as strong as he was, he was a man's man, 
needed assistance, having been up all night praying and then being taken captive and going through probably a five to six hour trial. It's about nine o'clock in the morning when they're going to nail him to the tree. And yet on the way up there, he, his physical being faltered and he needed assistance with his cross. Simon the Cyrenian, the Bible says he was compelled in Matthew's commentary on this, Matthew 27, 32, uh, compelled to carry the cross. Jesus didn't really need to carry his cross because he was innocent. It was the victims, it was the criminals that were to carry their cross. And Simon, it's an interesting guy. If you do a little research, he was the father of Alexander and Rufus, according to Romans 16, 13. He became friends with the apostles, Paul and Peter and others. But he was drafted. And in reality, he sort of represents all of us as sinners. We're the ones guilty before God, walking to the place of judgment where we should suffer for our sins. Instead, Simon, what does he do? He carries the cross of the innocent one who took our place. I like the word that's used there actually in Matthew's gospel. It says he was compelled. Here it says he was, it was laid on him. Kind of the same idea. The idea there being compelled, he was forced into service. But you know, Jesus wasn't forced into service. He willingly went to the cross for our sakes. Jesus was compelled by love for mankind. All our service in reality is to be done and all our deeds are to be done out of love. It's always his will, his initiative, his purpose, his blessing, his empowerment. This is what it's all about is that we do it as unto him. The thing here is that uh, Jesus didn't risk his life for us. He gave his life for us. True life. The gift of eternal life is now ours to possess. If we are willing to give our lives to him, we don't have to risk, we just need to give our lives to him. In full, complete abandonment of self-life, Jesus didn't just give part or a little. He gave it all, his entire life. He really, in reality, is a trailblazer. He showed us how. He set the example uh, the word to follow in his approach to the Father. Notice and remember how he prayed. You know, Lord, if there's any other way, if there's, if there's a, a, another possibility, please take this cup from me. And for you and me, there's no other way to have eternal life. We must give up our life. As the Father would say to us, no, my children, there's no other way to have eternal life. You must surrender your life. You must be willing to give. You must be willing to die to self. Not just risk, but give it all. And thus the scripture in Luke 9, 24 will be fulfilled. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Notice the, as we read through our text here this morning that the women, a multitude actually followed him. Some of them were women. And the people that were following respected him. Now you remember there's about two million people in Jerusalem about at this time that are going to celebrate the Passover. And the majority of those people knew that Jesus was 
a prophet. They knew he was a good man. They knew that he was innocent of all these charges. And they were aware of the ugliness of the establishment. And it was their doing that has caused Jesus to be put to death. And so the women following are mourning. They knew how wrong this was. They were lamenting. And Jesus, of course, gives the women another perspective. Because with Jesus, there's no self-pity. He knows why he's doing it. He tells them to weep for themselves of what's coming. No self-pity with Jesus. The cross was always something in the mind of Christ. He knew that was his destiny. There's no shock here. It wasn't really in the shadow of his announcement at his birth. His mission was proclaimed. He shall save his people from their sins. And this was Jesus' perspective as he's going through this in Hebrews 12 too. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy set before him, you were what brought Jesus joy. He was thinking about those who are going to be born again those who would come into the family of God and spend eternity with him. And so thus he was moved by his great love. But there still remained a day of judgment. He was making atonement for mankind, of course. The debt was being about to be paid in full, but the nation is going to suffer judgment. And this is what he's telling the women. If they do this in the green wood... What will be like in the dry? And so the idea there is that the Jewish people had an opportunity to partake of Messiah. There was a willing offer for them to receive the kingdom of God at his first coming. Could have been a fruitful time. Could have been a time of great blessing. But they rejected Jesus as, at that time. And so the dry wood would be what would be left. The spiritual blindness come upon the nation for their rejection of Christ. They were dead, spiritually speaking. Israel was God's nation, God's people. And they were presented with an opportunity to receive the kingdom under Christ's first coming. But now it's going to be fiery judgment. Not within 40 years of this time, Jerusalem will be sacked, destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. Millions of Jews would be killed. And then the rest would be scattered throughout the world. And this has been the case for the last 2,000 years. And really, it's what that first generation reaped what they had sown. His blood be upon us and upon our children. Well, you got what you asked for. And thus we see the pain and the suffering that the Jewish people have suffered since their rejection of their Messiah. Does that mean that their disobedience in receiving Jesus after uh, has Messiah uh, disqualifies them from any possible reconciliation with God? No. But the Bible does tell us in Romans eleven twenty five that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. At some point in time, when God is done dealing with the Gentile nations, and their offering of salvation through the gospel of Christ, when that full number is complete, you and I are going to 
evacuate this place. We're going to be gone. The bride will be swept away into the presence of the Lord. That's our hope. And then God will again begin to deal with the nation of Israel. The Bible explains that in Ezekiel 39. The Spirit will come upon them. The whole, they will be um, attacked. And five, six of that invading army from the north will be destroyed. But at that time, the Bible says the Spirit will come upon the nation. Their eyes will be opened. They will receive and understand that, that uh, the one whom they pierced was actually their Messiah, and they'll, they'll be saved. A number of people will be saved that are Jewish. Again, Jesus didn't just risk his life for you. He gave his life for you. He laid down his life. This is what he tells us in John's gospel. No one takes it from me, but I lay it of my, down of myself. And I have the power to lay it down. I also have the power to take it up again. This commandment I received my father. And so he's able to, in verse 34, reverse, or as it were, forgive them for those who are mocking him. I, I find that uh, just an incredible grace. When someone mocks me or ridicules me and you have the same feeling the last thing you're going to do is keep your mouth shut and it doesn't even enter into our minds that we should forgive them that's a supernatural that's God's love Father forgive them they're ignorant they don't know what they're doing imagine what Jesus must have looked like upon that cross with those soldiers and you see that contempt for them even though he was the Bible tells us in in Isaiah 52, that visage was so marred, more than any man, more than the form of the sons of men. He was beaten beyond recognition, and they're still mocking him. That is incredibly hard-heartedness. They spat on him. They disrespected the very one who had actually created them. He created the tree that he was hanging on. Now, we can think, all oh, those rotten, mean soldiers, you know. But let's step back a minute. All that does is express the capability of the human heart. You have to realize in order to be saved that you are a sinner. You see, I'm just as capable of being that hard-hearted and being that mean-spirited as those Roman soldiers were to Jesus. The problem we have, naturally speaking, as people is that we are self-righteous. We always think of ourselves and see ourselves in a better light than we really are. For some reason, it's really difficult for us to admit that we are poor, blind, and naked before God and that we're sinners. But we must come that way and be honest with ourselves. And despite our depravity, God still loves us. And he has identified with us in the person of Christ. You know... There's no escaping the fact that we are his creation. We belong to him. Some of us just need to be reconciled with him. And that's what happens in Christ. You know, this is, what um, I'm about to say is nothing new. You've probably heard it before. It's been around for quite some time. I'm not an expert in this, but I find it really fascinating. And so I want to share it because it fits here. Um, 
God's name is written within us. We have this genetic code uh, referred to as a double helix. And it's with, within that code is what they call sulfur bridges. Now, I don't understand genetics like that, but I'm just repeating what I find to be so fascinating. Uh, every cell in our body has this code. And uh, in this code, every 10 links of it, so to speak, of this double helix change, there's a bridge. And then after those ten, there's another five. After that bridge, there's another six. After that, and then another five. And then there's this ongoing repetition of the same ten, five, six, five repetition through our DNA. It's interesting that this is a parallel, uh, there's a parallel in these numbers with Hebrew letters. Uh, ten, five, six, five. The ten is the yod. Uh, the five is the hey. The six is the vav. And the five is, of course, the hey again. So you have y, h, w, h. Is anybody, does that ring a bell at all with anybody? That is the name of Yahweh. That is what the Jews refer to as Yahweh, God's name. The consonant, they're all consonants, Y-H-W-H. And then in the Hebrew language, since it's a pictorial language, it has symbols that correspond to these letters. The Yod, is, its symbol is the hand. The He is, uh, means behold or look. Uh, the Vav uh, is a nail or a, a hook. If you look at the shape of it, it's like, like a tent peg. Um, the, the hay, as I said, is, be, is behold. So if you put all that together, it is behold the nails in my hands. Isn't that amazing? His name is written within us. In our, it's in our DNA. You want to identify Yahweh? You look at the man who has the nails in his hands. The Bible declares that all things were made by the breath of his mouth. Ruach. I find that also fascinating. By the word of the Lord. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. It is said that the breath of his mouth refers to the letter hey, or the outbreathing of his spirit. And what is even more amazing is you can actually say his name without moving your lips or your tongue. And think about this for a moment. And I'm going to exaggerate this uh, so that you get it. Our first breath was a yah. Like when you get, some of us got spanked and we went, right? By the doctor when he came out of your mother's womb. Yeah. And our last breath, which we probably may not hear, would be, yeah. Isn't that something? The Spirit. Our first breath and our last breath is God's name.
Wasn't that amazing? I didn't have to move my lips. Didn't even have to move my tongue. You see, he made these men and the people who crucified him. They were blind. It was just human ignorance. They knew not. And yet they were fulfilling prophecy. Could you imagine? This is what makes the Bible so powerful. God speaks of things that are not as though they were because he knows they're going to be. Psalm 22.18 tells us that his garments would be divided. How did David know to write that? Well, he's a prophet and God inspired him because God knows the future. It tells us that they would mock him and ridicule him there in, in the Psalms. The inscription above him, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Yes, Jesus is king of the Jews, but it's put in all languages because he's not just dying for the Jews, but he's dying for everyone, the whole world. He is the savior of the whole world, not just the Jewish people. He is king of kings. He's king of the nations. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And so this sign really did tell the truth that he is the king. Sometimes I wonder through this whole expression, the mockery and the thing that was going on, what was really going on in the spirit realm? Now we've mentioned this before. Psalm 22 talks about this. The bulls of Bashan, which are demonic spirits surrounding him the things that are going on. There's not only the physical things that he's gone through, the emotional things that have happened to him, the engagement with all the people that were torturing him, receiving all the, the ridicule, and then seeing his mother and those who loved him watch, all that. But there's something, a greater trial going on in the spirit of Christ, and that is the war of the unseen realm. You can imagine Satan was just whispering and mocking him within his mind, sending a message that I defeated God in your face. His display of disgust and hatred of God and what we see presented in the crucifixion of Christ. What is he saying? I'm king of this realm. Your creation, human creation has failed. They forfeited the earth to me and it's mine forever. I can't imagine the conversation that must have been taking place and the accusations from the accuser of the brethren that was going on in the mind of Christ as he hung there being tormented by the pain. And yet, in reality, how blind and how arrogant Lucifer is. He's so blinded by his hatred. 1 Corinthians 2.6 reveals his blindness. And the blindness of his cohorts, as it were. However, we speak wisdom. This is 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom of God ordained before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew, for if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
Lucifer may be triumphing in this moment, having Jesus on the cross, but he never would have done it had he realized that it was actually bringing his defeat. And we can all praise the Lord for the love of God that he would allow himself to stay nailed to that cross and defeat the prince of darkness. The wisdom of this age does not understand the ways of God. You know, of course, we know he's not speaking, the rulers of this age, he's not speaking about Caesar. He's not talking about the establishment. He's talking about the same entities and that are listed in Ephesians chapter 6, the rulers, the principalities, rulers of the darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places. That's, those are the rulers. They're the ones that govern and work through the tyrants that lead the nations and are even in our present day. But God's plan to redeem us through the Lamb of God was never be hidden. It was hidden from the enemy. And that's why prophecy in and of itself is very cryptic. It's why you and I really don't understand it very well. It's like, what does that mean? When was that going to happen? Well, there's a spiritual warfare going on, and God doesn't put it out there just in plain language, but it's there, and it can be revealed. It could be understood because a mystery, according to the Bible, is a hidden truth, but it's not a hidden truth that cannot be known. It's a truth that can be revealed. He does reveal his secrets, as it says in Amos to his prophets. He'll, re- he'll, he'll reveal his plan, his will to his servants and those who ask. Verses, as we finish up here, verses 44 through 49, I'll forego the reading of the text, but Jesus dies on the cross. He's put on there about 9 a.m., and by 3 p.m. he will breathe his last and complete the judgment that needed to be taken place upon the sins of mankind. He paid the debt in full. He was punished for our sins. His offering... became and made atonement for eternally for the sins of mankind. The Bible tells us that cursed, this is Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Jesus was cursed by the Father. He became that sin offering. As the Bible tells us, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. This is where the great exchange takes place. Jesus became what we are, in a sense. Broken, born into sin, separated from God, just sinful people. He took upon that sin that we might become the righteousness, the great exchange. He becomes what we are so we could become, as he is, righteousness. You see, righteousness is a gift. It cannot be earned. That's why we have to avoid self-righteousness. Righteousness that God gives is the righteousness of Christ. It's the one that gives us a right standing with God through faith and not of works. I no longer have to worry about saying, I'm a good person. I don't murder, kill, and steal, you know. No, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with just believing in what Jesus did was for you and for me personally. How do we know? How do we know this is true? We have a Evidence. Jesus cried out, It is finished. He cried out, It is finished. What happened? The veil in the temple was torn from top 
to bottom. That's how we know that the offering and the atonement Christ made for you and for me was accepted by the Father. That veil was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and 10 inches thick. And it was torn from top to bottom. I want to ask you, how else could that veil have been torn at that time, at that very moment that he cried out, had not God himself torn that veil? Wow. You know what that means for you and me? There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Wow. As far as the east is from the west, so God has removed our sin from us. We no longer have to relate to God on the basis of performance. Hey, Lord, you know that sin I, the thing I did yesterday that I shouldn't have done? And God says, what are you talking about? I don't remember. That's what it happens to your sin. When we confess and forsake and admit who we are before God, it's removed as far as the east is from the west. Isn't that a wonderful gift? But there's more than that. What was the veil all about? Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year after atonement had been made through blood sacrifice. The veil is torn. That means we have free entrance. This is what Hebrews tells us. We can come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in the time of need. Full confidence. Not because of who we are in our self-righteousness, but because we are in Christ, we are in Him, and God hears our prayers and He answers them. Do you have that confidence this morning that when you pray, God is going to answer? See, a lot of times we get this thing in our minds like, well, I know God can answer my prayers, but I really have not been a good boy lately. I, you know, my conduct, man, let's just say I'm a, I'm a mess, you know, I'm not doing well. So God, God probably can't answer my prayers. What does that kind of mindset reveal? It means you're still trying to relate to God on the basis of your works. Stop it. Stop it. That's not how you and I relate to our Father. We are under the blood. Yes, we are to confess that. You think, well, I don't get this whole thing. About how do we deal with sin? Well, First John's a good place to start. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have this need to tell the truth. That's what confession is, by the way. There's a need to acknowledge that I crossed the line, that I did something that I should not have done, and acknowledge that. And then he's faithful and just to forgive. It's instantaneously takes place. The guy on the cross beside him, remember me, when you come in to your kingdom today, well, let me think about that for a moment. Let me think about all those bad... What was your crime, by the way? No, there was no conversation. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Forgiveness is instantaneous. The problem that we have is that there's a lingering effect. Every sin has, every sin has a stinger. And there's a lingering effect when we cross the line. That guilt... Sometimes it emotionally affects us, it affects our spirit. We have to get over it. That's why you need to be in the Word of God. It's by the washing and regeneration of the Word of God that it cleanses our mind. It renews our spirit. And I have to give myself to that. That's so important that I do that.
it's so much more fun in your, to walk with the Lord when you walk on the basis of grace. Because you know, no matter what you do or what you you don't deserve anything. But you know your, fa- your Father in Heaven wants nothing more than to lavish His gifts, His love. He wants, it's kind of like, He wants us to get beyond that level of failure and to where we just enjoy Him. But is it really possible to enjoy God? Oh, absolutely. You were, I remember not too many minutes ago we were enjoying God, were we not? Our, his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're his. Don't ever forget how, what he did on your behalf. He hung on that tree. He took the nails so you and I didn't have to. The crucifixion of Christ, one of the most incredible feats, the most, there's no greater display of love than for a person to lay down their life for their friends. And see, that's who Jesus died for. He died for his friends. You know, there's a few people in the Bible that are called friends of God, Abraham, Moses, and you. We are to be God's friends and walk with him. So I want to pray for you and ask that God would just bless you with a great week as you walk with him. I pray that you will deepen your commitment to be in his word. It is by the washing and regeneration of his word that our minds are renewed. We discover God's will. It is being in the word of God that shows us his will and his purpose. It is being in the word of God that we find joy. It is being in the word of God that we sense his presence. Because that's what we're after, is it not? The presence of Jesus Christ is what we seek. Shall we stand? Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, that you are able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever think or ask. And I know some of my brothers and sisters have some really powerful imaginations, Lord. And I just ask, Father, that you would do as your word says and bless each and every one of my brothers and sisters this week with overwhelming blessings that they will find joy they will walk in your peace and experience your love as they've never experienced it before we're asking Father that you would draw us near your heart that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to us individually and saying to our own church here Lord We ask that you would guide us. We pray that you would go before us. Be our foreguard. Be our rear guard. Be all over us, Lord. Again, we thank you for this time of worship. And Father, we pray you would truly receive our praise now as we close singing to you in Jesus' name. Amen.